It's time now for another Pinball Profile. I'm your host, Jeff Teolis. You can find our group on Facebook. We're also on Twitter at Pinball Profile. Email us pinballprofile at gmail.com. And please subscribe on either iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. It's a pleasure to be talking to a man who has created a lot of joy for many, many years, including in my house, with some of the greatest games ever made. Joe Balser from American Pinball joins us right now. Hey, Joe, how are you? Hey, Jeff. Doing great. How about yourself? I'm good, and it's really nice to talk to you again. We had a great conversation at Expo where your latest was released, Oktoberfest, and it's an incredibly fun game to play. I think I was lucky enough to get four games in, and, and I say that because, you know, a lot of times when games come out, we're not at full code, and by the admission of American Pinball, this game was, I think, six out of 14 modes are done, and it still was fun. Well, there you go. Yeah, it, it definitely not a finished code. Is it 50% there? Um, yeah, I'll, I'll go with probably 50, 60% where Josh might be now since Expo. But um, it was pretty preliminary, but we had time to get a lot of modes done ahead of time. Getting the help from Joe has definitely helped, helped us out to move along at a better pace. Well, I was excited when American Pinball hired Joe Schober, who is a great pinball player for one thing, too, but he's done some good work, too, with uh, Highway Pinball. So bringing a good pinball player on to American Pinball, that's uh, that can only bode well for the way the game is going to play and certainly the rules involved. You had to be excited as well. Oh, yeah. Once I got to know Joe and, his, and more of his background, knowing that he's that type of shooter, you know, he loves playing, he's competitive. He's done a lot with our rules from a different point of view, you know what I mean? So for a rule set to come together, the more people that are involved initially to kind of throw out a bunch of ideas and then pick through them to come up with the best rule set, to have Joe and Josh working together now, really you could see it evolving at a better pace and the rules are very, you know more competitive rules where if you're shooting something, you're always shooting to... When you make that shot, you're accomplishing something. There are no shots that mean, you know, that don't have a lot of meaning to them. So it's a, it's a pretty good combo that with Joe and Josh working together now. So I'm pretty happy about that. That's a good point, too, because players don't really like those games that have the repeatable shots or the chopping wood aspect, too. And with Oktoberfest, boy, you better know your flipper skills because you're going to need it on all of the flippers, especially the uh, upper right flipper, which has got, uh, you know, usually an upper right flipper has maybe one, maybe two shots. There's several up there, and they're they're quite difficult. I'll say that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the upper flipper shots... Unless it's a wide-open ramp area or a wide-open shot, they're tough. People aren't used to the angles. It takes a little time to pick up on the angles of the shots, where it's at on the flipper, the speed of the ball coming around. One thing we try to help there, and which, which has been done on, on other many other pins, is you know to set up the ball for the shot. So we have a magnet above it that you can set that ball up so you can control the speed as it's coming to the flipper. Uh, we could do that in code, and obviously, you know, I don't know if you've, you've known or, or seen that we added a manually controlled button below the right flipper button that uh, controls the magnets also. So you can help set your shots up to make those upper shots definitely more makeable and more doable than on just flying the ball through a loop and trying to catch it at that speed. 
Well, I did like that effect. I certainly enjoyed that the magnets were there. One thing I noticed, I thought, okay, this is going to make it really, really easy. Maybe it's going to be like roller games. It's going to put it right on there. One, two, three, flip. The magnets help, but it doesn't make it easier because you still have to have that timing involved, you know, when it puts it just above the right upper flipper. And I thought that was very, very cool that we're going to make it easier for you, but we're not going to gift wrap it exactly. I thought that yeah. was cool. Yeah, it's not an auto flip or anything. We may try to play with that and and have something set up if the timing is right. It just might make that shot on its own down the road. Who knows? You talked about those flippers on the right-hand side. Something, you know, you've done this a few times. You've done things that have we've never seen before. And here we have, on the right-hand side, we have two buttons. So you can play one-handed. The joke was, yeah, you can drink a beer in the left hand. I just thought that was so cool, and that's going to come up in some kind of unique challenges, some pinball Olympics. You know, sometimes we see people play with boxing gloves on, or now we're going to have challenges where, yeah, you got to play with the right hand only. That's cool. Yeah, it'll be a, it'll be a mode in the game. You can set your game to play the two flipper mode or the two button mode for both flippers on the right side. It's not a first. Jerry Stahlberg did it on one of uh, one of his games with his new platform. P3? Yeah, I believe it's in the in the P3. Don't quote me on that because you'd have to ask Josh. I think Josh knows a little bit more about it because um, someone was quoted as saying that it was a first in pinball where it, I don't think it really was. So Jerry has something to do with it, with a mode at his game. But um, integrating it into Oktoberfest... Yeah, it, it, that's kind of a fun thing. When Josh told me about it, I nearly fell back a little bit because it's like, okay, here you go. Now we're starting to add some stuff to this game that has a little bit more meaning towards the Oktoberfest theme. It definitely works for sure. And I've played the P3 game before, the Lexi Lightspeed. I don't recall that in that. Maybe I'm just not good enough, but maybe it was another P3 platform that I that I haven't seen. Well, we'll get to this now because uh, I want to talk about your great career and things. And recently, Oktoberfest has uh, come into the news but I want to say that I talked to a bunch of players and the news is about the backlash and, and certainly the concern that was there with, with the monkey doing inappropriate things to a couple of women. American Pinball almost immediately listened, addressed the issue, and said they are going to correct it. And to me, as I've told other players, I said, look, we all make mistakes. We all do things we wish we didn't do. The key in life is is when you make a mistake, you own it immediately. And American Pinball has done that. And I think the feedback has been very positive that, wow, they listen to us. They're going to do something about this. And you know what? Let's forgive and move forward. And I got to say, I don't know what it was like in the office for you when this happened, because I'm sure it was upsetting. Here's your new baby that's come out and it's got a great buzz from Expo. And then this is a bit of a setback. But I hope you and everyone in American Pinball feel good that, you know what? We've owned it, and we're moving forward, and I think we're going to be forgiven for this. Well, that, that's exactly what we hope for. You know, I was, I was contacted early on before the storm basically hit by a couple of women in the industry and said, Joe, what, what did you do here? And uh, that weight got real heavy. And um, it wasn't as though we wanted to put something out that was offensive. It wasn't, a, 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 you know, as though we wanted to put something out that was degrading or, or, or any, of, any of those negative, any of the negative that was put out there because of it. But as soon as that came back to us, we made a decision to stop it in its tracks. So the artwork has been changed. 
we're going through our art on the play field and we're we're uh just making it right you know there's a there's a shift that needs to happen change happens and and change is good and uh you know in our in our world today this change is big and it's a change that is good for society it's good for the american people it's good for the world we need to uh we need to watch what we're doing you know pinball has been a little lenient uh, lenient over the years not even a little but that's not the pinball that we design these days so you know our art packages will we will take into consideration that first and foremost and like i said we've we've cleaned up the issue on our end and you'll just see it in the the new package it has all of that removed so um, i feel good about it the company feels good about it and and i hope our customer base like like you said you know can forgive us for this we did try to you know jump on it and and rectify it as quickly as we could and that's that's the best we could do and we hope that that's enough for our customer base i think you're going to come out of this okay because again the speed of the reaction from american and just hearing you say you know we've got to change and change is good i think a lot of people are going to really be excited by this machine and what moves forward with american pinball so good on you and uh, the company for that the game itself we want to talk about how this thing shoots. I, I, I'm looking forward to playing it again. So I guess the question is, production, uh, when do we expect to see these out in the public, at the arcades, in our homes? Is, is there a target date we're looking at right now? Uh, yeah, there sure is. There's been a target date from when we drew the first line, obviously. We did want to make it to Expo with it being Oktoberfest theme. Right now, we are all hands on deck to make sure everything's ready for production. The game in my opinion, could be a little better. And there's a couple shots on it that I'm not real comfortable with. So we went back in two areas on the play field I'm going to be updating. The uh, the shots will mean more. Uh, the shots will be easier to shoot at. Uh, you won't get a lot of rejections out of them. The lower scoop, is that what you're talking about? The lower scoop is one of them because the lower scoop, you know, you, you have to have some power on that right flipper to make the left ramp. And... By doing that, the shot right next to it is a scoop. So if you're nailing that straight on, your chances of it sticking were a lot lower than I expected. So I'm doing some physical changes there to make that a better shot. And uh, another area of play field, we're just making it a better shot with more meaning. Uh, I just finished the mechanical side of it all today as far as the parts that need to be updated. This week I'll have the uh, the playfield updated and get that out. And you know we're, we're we're shooting for there's some electronic things that that uh, our, our EEs are trying to get into this game. Uh, have been working on it for quite a while. It looks as though our target date was for starting to box games in December. And I'm thinking there's still a possibility of that, but I'm thinking more like we're starting to box and ship in January. So that's our goal. So we're out and we, we show it in October, November, December, January. Within a 90-day window, we're shipping games. Joe, obviously you took some feedback from Expo 2 and a lot of plays there. I mean, I know those three games that we saw on the floor there were really rushed to get to that point. I think it's safe to say they weren't even available a week before Expo. Uh, it's pretty safe to say. 
<laughs> so so here we are. We've had thousands of play on it at Expo, and you've already seen a few things, and you're going to make some adjustments. So I'm fine with that 90-day window to, you know, some of those people out there like, oh, I want it right now. Well, don't you want it right before yeah, you get it? Be, and Yeah, it'll be a better game. I, and everyone, yeah. once you play it again, it'll be a better game. There's no doubt. A couple things that I wanted to do that we just didn't have time to uh, the magic word we use in engineering to tweak it. The pinball fix word is tweak. So we really didn't have a lot of time to tweak some of the shots to make them better. They're there, but they need to be better. And uh, we don't want to put something out that comes back and says, the ball's not sticking on this. I'm not making this shot. Or why did you go here when it could have been a better shot? So I think some of the feedback I got from some of the players I know, and it just kind of fell in line with the changes that that I saw uh, to enhance the game. So that's where we're at. Owners have, have bought into what I want to do and what where we want to take the game. It's not a big overhaul of the game, but it's uh, it's enough to, you know, a couple of weeks of putting this thing back together again and then uh, ready to go. So we feel better about it. We've already got some of the sample shots and that on our Whitewood that we're shooting so we know the differences and we know that it feels better it's a better shooting game for it again i already like the way it shoots i love the way the play field looks it's so good i love the the wire form on the right hand yeah. side yeah when you decided to do that i assume it was to maybe slow down the ball but what was your thought process in that that great right wire form we wanted to have a roller coaster on the game because once we were going over you know going through what we wanted to do to bring this Oktoberfest theme out. A lot of guys, you know, talk about Oktoberfest, and it's, uh, you know, it's all about, you know, pretty women and, and drinking beers and getting sloppy and stupid, but that's not the true meaning and what Oktoberfest is. It's a big family party. I've talked to people that, I actually talked to people at Expo that just came from Oktoberfest in Munich. We're in the right place on how we brought out Oktoberfest. So to Wanting to do a roller coaster on a game, obviously there's a lot in the ramping. You know, that's going to make it make it or break it. So you got to give the players something that maybe you just haven't seen or something that doesn't even look like it might work until you get to that shot. The left ramp, it's really an orbit. And then if you look at that ramp, it's the biggest, it's the tallest steel ramp I can put in a game. It goes to the top of the back panel. So I stretch it out far enough forward that making it out of stainless steel, the ball will climb and get through that shot. Um, that was kind of what I, what I like to do with the layouts is try to put a shot on the game or a feature on the game that I'm stepping over the safe limit. You know, I'm stepping over that line that says you probably shouldn't put that in the game. Uh, you probably should lower that ramp. You probably shouldn't try to throw a pinball 20 inches um, without a wire form ramp between that and its target and think you're going to be accurate. So, you know, and, I, and I'm talking about the Houdini shot throwing a catapult 20 inches into the box. But the ramp, that's a big ramp. You won't see a, a bigger ramp on a game, and it shoots like butter. So to drop it off into a roller coaster style ramp, you only have so much real estate to work with on a pinball. We all know that. And you almost only have certain heights to work with. So I tried to put in as many 
horizontal loops as I could. And we were looking to do something else in the middle of that ramp that just I couldn't get our vendor. He didn't have, we didn't have enough time to make it happen. So we went into that zigzag back and forth in the ramp. So that ramp, the ball slows down, but it's a, it's a pretty cool visual to watch the ball follow those wires because it's, it's bigger wires for the main wire and they're spread out. So the ball kind of slows down and runs through the whole ramp. It goes through that zigzag and comes back into another horizontal loop. And uh, it just felt really good. And when the when the vendor came in with the first one and, and, and we mounted it and it worked, um, there was a lot of fist pumps going on at that point. So at least we, we knew we were going in the right direction. Definitely fun. Definitely rewarding. And you talked earlier about the strong flippers. You know, Joe Schober told me, he said, you know, that big ramp that you're talking about on the left-hand side, you can actually backhand it. And I said, come on, really? I did it. He wasn't lying. So strong flippers, a fun shot. And there are several there. Of course, the big auto head. Raymond Davidson, who's the number one player in the world, said, you know, when he first played this game, he said, it's Joe Balser's greatest hits game, which is the nicest compliment because, you know, he said there are so many things that remind him of some other Joe Balser games. And we're going to get into those games in a bit. But, you know, the auto head certainly reminds you a little bit of Homer Simpson a little bit. And, uh, I was talking to Matt Kern about the voices and I thought it was interesting with the sound and I think he got some feedback too that he's in love with the voiced auto and, and I agree, he's he's a great, great voice actor and does great call-outs. He, <laughs> he struggles with, are we going to get a German, an authentic German person to do it or an authentic German person to coach the person voicing? And and that, that was kind of a good point, too, because, you know, you want it to be as authentic as possible, but you also have a little bit of creative license. You look at where this game is going to be sold in, for the most part, probably in North America, I would assume. And the music that we hear, we hear some rock music, and there is some rock music at certain Oktoberfests, maybe not the authentic one in Germany, but again, that's part of the creative license. I'm okay with it, because I don't want to hear polka nonstop. I don't want to hear the accordion. Sorry to Weird Al fans, but I, I like the mix of the rock music. Yeah, and that was uh, that kind of went from day one. We we wanted to kind of pump it up uh, with some good kind of driving rock music. It started to come together, and then I, I gave Matt a call and said, "You know what? Let's start doing some accordion riffs in there." And he said, "What?" And I'm like, "Just try it. Let, let's take some accordion riffs and mix it in with the with the rock sound." And he did one heck of a job, and now he's pretty happy with what he did. So, you know, some of the diehard Oktoberfest people that were talking to me at the show or some emails that I've gotten, that it's not as authentic as it should be, and we get that, but like you said, you know, um, we do have the traditional sounds and music in there when you get into certain modes, uh, but we're going to have for multi-ball, we're going to have more of a driving rock sound to it. Um, we just wanted to kind of pump it up and give it a little bit of extra um, and, and kind of take away from the, kind of not take away from, but to add to the, the oompa oompa kind of, you know, band music that is more traditional, at, I'm sure, out in Munich or at a lot of Oktoberfest events. Fine by me. I certainly enjoyed the sounds of the game and, as we've said, the uh, 
the playing of the game. How many stand-ups do you have on this game? Oh, boy, the stand-ups are... It's over 20. Yeah, because you have Oktoberfest, and then we have Prost. So Prost is 16. Um, you got 17, 18. There's probably... Yeah, there's, there's in the 20s. I'm not exactly... I, I mean, I could... I should have been prepared for that question. <laughs> My point is, stand-ups seem to be almost a, a Joe Balser signature. Is that safe to say? I look at Wizard of Oz, there's over 20 there. A few of your games have a lot, and I'm fine with it. I just, that that's one way to quickly say, oh, that's a Balser game. Yeah, I, you know, I don't know if that's, I, I think it's inherent to the designs. Um, you know, Starship Troopers had uh, drop targets, you know, I, if we could use drop targets as a designer everywhere, I think I would, just because of the mechanical aspect of drop targets. But when it comes down to space that you have, real estate that you have, and the cost you're trying to keep a game down under, um, the stand-up target serves its purpose. You're going to hit the target, you're going to score. Um, it's not dropping out of your way, which I'd love to see more of. But you start getting into a four, five, six bank drop targets. You're getting into a nice chunk of change on your bill of material, which takes away something else from the game. So kind of to balance it out, I think I'd rather have more targets to shoot at than than not, I guess, would be a way to put it. Well, let me tell you something from a player's perspective. I know that, let's say Stern, for example, you know, if you get a pro model, they're probably got a lot of stand-ups. And then if you go to a, a premium, you'll see more drop targets. From a player's perspective, I'm actually more a fan of the stand-ups. And the reason is, it makes the game go faster. I'll use an example like ACDC, pro versus premium. The premium plays a lot slower because of the drop targets. Whereas they bounce off, you know, the ACDC and the the Let There Be Rock side and the TNT, it makes the game go a lot faster. So I'm totally fine with the stand-ups. I don't think anybody's looking at Wizard of Oz and going, boy, I wish those were drop targets. Not a chance. You know what I mean? So if you can get more in, if you can keep the cost down, I don't care. I just, my, my whole comment about the stand-ups were, there are a lot of them. And it's, uh, but that means there's a lot more things to shoot. And you know what? You don't want wasted shots. You don't want repeatable shots. You look at the play field of Oktoberfest and you look at what you can do on the right flipper. I'm looking, okay, there's the Oktoberfest. There's the ramp. There's the scoop. You can go up the middle. You can hit the uh, stand-ups on the right-hand side. You can backhand that uh, up ramp. There's a lot you can do. That's just one flipper. Same on the other side. Same with the upper flipper. That's what makes Oktoberfest a fun shooting game. Well, thanks. Yeah, I try to get as many shots on the initial layout as I can. You know, uh, one thing I wanted to do was put the Oktoberfest letters on the game. So try fitting 11 targets. <laughs> um, you know, it. so that's why, that's where the... The semi, the circular banks came from just to fit in October and Fest. Uh, if it was up to me, I would have made it a one continuous 11, 11 bank target to shoot at, or you know, 11 target bank, I should say, to shoot at. But uh, that way we split it up at the lower part of the play field. And you know, there's, there's 11 separate shots with 11 separate targets. So um, it's got its advantages. It's not as mechanical as I would like them to be, but. Like you said, it does it does 
make a faster paced game. That's for sure. Oktoberfest has 11 letters and you've got 11 stand-ups for that and you had to do that. It's a good thing you weren't working on Thunderbirds with the International Rescue and having to spell yeah. that out. <laughs> exactly, that'd be a bigger bank. It doesn't matter. This is a fun, fun game. And I want to talk about some of your other games too and how you got started into pinball, which was really with Richie Rich. You made one game, one game for Aaron Spelling. Right. And that's really, that was just a... A remake or a kind of a um, a retread of, a, of another of another game. You know what had happened back then is that our engineering department got a call from, and I, I you know don't quote me on the exact how this exactly happened, but I remember uh, Joe Chemical was running you know ran our engineering department, um, called everybody together and said we just got a phone call from Mrs. Aaron Spelling that she wanted. Um, a custom pinball machine for her husband, uh, a man that has everything. Um, we'd like a custom pinball machine. And Joe threw a, a number out there, uh, and I, whatever that number might have been, it was it was pretty large. And she said, "Who do I write the check to?" By the way, as a guy who does sales for yeah. a living, if if you throw out a big price and someone says, "Okay." Yeah. You made a mistake. You should have made the you number bigger. Made, yeah, you're, that's probably true because that's kind of the way Joe put it where, you know, I, I threw a price out there and she said, who do I write the check to? So that's kind of where, you know, the Richie Riches, Aaron Spelling, um, a couple of the other one-offs that we did. It was just, it was just you know, put a new artwork package in, play with the rules a little bit and make these people happy. And that's kind of how that came about. So that was with Data East, which quickly became Sega, and then your first crack at a new game, and you had a licensed theme in Baywatch, too. So let's go back to Baywatch, a game that uh, has a couple of video modes. The first thing I noticed was, hey, you can put six players on this. That's kind of cool. Tell us your thoughts of Baywatch and the early days of Sega. Well, Baywatch was the first full-size pinball I was assigned to lay out, and you know, we got to go a little crazy with that. A lot of ramping, a lot of misdirection with the ball. It felt, it just felt good laying that game out and then watching it being built and come up to, you know, come up to speed and everything working. You know, when I was hired at Data East, uh, Joe Chemical brought me in. I had been, uh, you know, my, my whole career kind of started out at Valley Midway way back in the early 80s. Kind of jumped through and, and went over to Wicko for a game there, and then that kind of shut down. And looking around, and I ended up at Premier Technology for uh, I don't know five, six years at Premier, seven years, and then ended up at Data East. And Joe brought me in, and that's where I had my opportunity to start to learn design. He had a real, I don't know, a real passion for what pinball design was about and I was able to kind of take that all in with the crew that we had there and to be a lead you know to be lead design on a game obviously I had three or four guys working with me at the time you know to do some of the mechanics and things there but you know that first that first layout that first lines and circles um, that turns into a you know a, a full 3d pinball uh, it was a, an amazing feeling for me, and it just, you know, it got me at that point. So it started to be a lot of fun for me, and, you know, once you're, um, 
once you're going to work and it's fun, it's not so much work anymore. So uh, that kind of started it all out with laying out pinballs, started out with, with the Baywatch team. And it's got to make you feel good that your first baby, as far as people are concerned and as far as voting matters on something like Pinside, still in the top 100. So your first game out of all the games made is still received very, very well. And I enjoy the game. I uh, find the Shark Flipper uh, difficult. I can't nail that thing. I I should probably just let it do it by itself. But uh, that was unique. What was your thought behind that kind of uh, almost reverse thing flips flipper? Yeah, um, I'll tell you, I don't know. We kind of we were messing with that area of the play field and ended up, you know, working this small flipper out that shot, uh, and one of the shots went right across the play field, and we found that we could control it. So once we started to get that down, it just became this automatic flip. You know, where it really came from, you know, yeah, who, who really knows? I, that goes back a few years. So, you know, it's probably just something that was, you know, unique to what we were doing at the time, and that's and it just stuck. Let's go on to the next game. And, you know, if you've ever played hyperball, you go, wow, that's a lot of balls. But they're little balls. Well, you've got big balls, and you've got a lot of them. Apollo 13. Joe, you wanted to be the uh, the big guy on campus with uh, that crazy multi-ball, didn't you? Tell us about that game you made along with uh, John Borg and, again, Joe Kamenkow. Right. It's uh, amazing to be able to stage that many pinballs and control it. That was the main, the main issue with the game was how do we load and reload pinballs to so programming so that, you know, who's coding the game knows where those balls are at all times. So when we came up with the, the eight ball trough up in the left corner and we had five down in the in the in the uh, the main trough, it was a matter of how to get them there without, you know, interrupting gameplay to try to load. And by going up over the top of the shooter lane and back around and then having a basically a diverter at the top of the play field that it would either load the balls into the eight ball trough or or let the balls go back into play at the top lanes. Once we get got that down and it was consistent, then it was off to the races. We can make this happen. When we went out on test with that game, you kind of get real cozy with a pinball, um, working it through all of its all of its stages, you know, getting it to shoot, making your tweaks, making things better. And then you're finally ready to go out on test. And we brought Apollo to one of the arcades that we were working with as a test location. And, uh, you know, never forget, we were sitting there, we put the game up, and uh, this woman and her son walked up to the game to play it while I was there. And we had set it where uh, the 13-ball multi-ball was just one shot away on the next ball uh, and the next game. And when she hit that shot, she let out a scream that you wouldn't believe when the eight when the eight balls dumped on top of the five balls that were already there. It is total chaos to begin with. There's no controlling that. It's just flipping away, flailing away as much as you can to keep the balls from draining. But when that happened, she she let out a scream. Her son started crying. And <laughs> The whole thing went up for grabs, and 
I even to this day kind of forget who was there with me, but you knew you had something special when that happened. I still have my Apollo from when it was new. I was lucky enough to be able to deliver a game to Jim Lovell's house. And, you know, I have a game that my back glass is signed and the Saturn V rocket is signed by Jim, Mr. Lovell, Jim Lovell. So, you know, some of the things that happen in pinball, um, you'd never think that I'd have a machine here that was signed by Jim Lovell, the astronaut that's a part of Apollo 13. And um, just we were, we were able to go out to the debut of the game out in Hollywood we spent some time at an after party. All these things that just were part of pinball back in the '90s. Just had a total, you know, total fun with that game. It's the first game that my name is in the back glass. If you ever see a, an Apollo, look at the name tag on the main astronaut, and it's Reclab. Uh, just kind of works out as kind of a space themed name as Reclab. And um, but that's just balls for backwards. So it was kind of fun. Jeff Bush, who I worked on Apollo, or I'm sorry, who I worked on um, Houdini and Oktoberfest with at American Pinball, um, did the art for Apollo 13, and then we ended up putting uh, my name in there. Only it's backwards. So it's kind of it's kind of a cool little innuendo thing that I have for Apollo 13. But a uh, great game. I'm looking forward to beating it with 14 balls. Uh, one of these days, I'm hoping that happens. 14 balls, my goodness. Well, anyway, a nice Easter egg there in Apollo. Let's go to Space Jam. Space Jam is a game, it took me forever to find one of these. I finally got to see one at a place you're familiar with, Vancouver Flipout last year, and I know you were there this year. Tell me some of your thoughts about making Space Jam. Again, just a fun theme. Joe Camico. Who was who was getting you know setting up all of our licenses? Talked about Space Jam and this movie coming up, which we didn't know anything about. But once we got into seeing parts of the movie, reading what it was going to be about, it's time to make a, a really cool basketball themed game. You know, one of the main shots on the game, um, off the right flipper, or even off the left flipper, is a, a shot up to the upper left corner where the ball jumps on a steel ramp. Uh, I put a magnet on a basketball backboard and when it jumps off the ramp the magnet grabs it and does a little slam dunk on the basket and it turns out to be a really satisfying shot especially when you can hit them over and over you know the game is just a funny fun game with a fun theme i just picked one up just recently Uh, i only have four games in my collection i've had many more um, at one time in my life but you go through a couple of divorces and a, a few pinball machines uh, kind of disappear. But uh, you know, I just picked up another Space Jam that was shot. It's in beautiful shape. It's a fun game to play. Uh, we had a lot of fun putting that, that one together. Got to meet Michael Jordan. Got to go to uh, the Make-A-Wish Foundation when when uh, Michael Jordan was, was a big part of it. Met Patrick Ewing, who is a very, very large man. Never thought I would be, you know, that connected, but it was just fun being a part of pinball and, and, and being a part of all these different events also because of games you did. So another fun game to do. So it's got to be very exciting when you get some of these licensed themes and you're like, wow, Space Jam, maybe I'll meet Jordan. Sure enough, you met Michael Jordan. 
And you talked about the Apollo 13, and I know some of the Baywatch cast came out and, and signed some autographs too. So when you got the next one, Star Wars Trilogy, were you shaking in your boots? I mean, that's something that's near and dear to my heart. Yeah, we had some real nice ideas for that one. It had to be done fairly quickly. I think that year I did Star Wars Trilogy and Starship Troopers back-to-back, I believe. There was a time, I believe it was those two games that were back-to-back. So I was real busy. Um, Having a theme like Star Wars Trilogy where there's a lot of IP there's a lot to work with on the programming side, on the visual side. That uh, it, that that game really came together nicely. We had a couple of really neat toys on it that worked out. Fun game to do. The, you know, the licensed themes were. Uh, that's all we were doing then. And you know, you get a lot of content with licensed themes. But then, you know, there are walls up around you with licensed themes, too. You have to do the things the right way to get approved. So, um, and Star Wars Trilogy being this, you know, part of the, the whole Star Wars internationally, uh, you really had to, you know, do things right for them. So, love doing a game, a lot of fun. And I had drop targets on that one, so there you go. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Joe, we've heard some of the people talk about the current Star Wars game from Stern and some of the difficulties with the artwork and what can be done and what can't be done. Was that what it was like back when your Star Wars trilogy was made or was it a lot easier than what you've heard? Well, it, it, it went with it went with the theme. It went with whatever that license might be. There could be one or two actors in there that, you know, become really picky about their li- about their likenesses. There could be, you know, aspects within the movie that the the art that's done has to be spot on. And if it doesn't look right or it's not scaled right or it's not fitting that area right, meaning it's too big or it's too small, you'll hear everything. Licensors have a way to they can dictate because it's their property. So you're trying to you're trying to serve them and, and be right with them. And sometimes it takes a few iterations to get to the point where you get that stamp of approval. And that goes with any license, really. Well, Star Wars Trilogy was kind of the first time I noticed, boy, Joe Balser games have some really cool toys with the, the moving X-Wing fighter. And you definitely know that about the next game. And you mentioned it, Starship Troopers with, with the bugs. Toys are pretty important to you, aren't they? Yeah, and at the time, toys... The, the one thing we didn't do, we didn't have to do a lot of custom toys. I think the industry looks for the custom toys now. Back then, we would work with toy manufacturers. We would get catalogs or samples of everything that was coming out for Starship Troopers or everything that was coming out for for Star Wars, you know, for the next Star Wars movie or for Space Jam or whatever. So we would have a relationship with the toy manufacturers and we would get all these samples to try to adopt them to the game. Starship Troopers is a real good example of that because there are a lot of toys on there, but those were not toys that we, you know, we didn't sculpt. They, they weren't custom. They weren't custom made. We bought them in bulk, and we fit them to mechanisms. But on Starship Troopers, it was just, it was a lot of ready-made toys that we built into the game let's just put it that way 
Well, you had to build a toy for the next game, Godzilla, the, the big Godzilla head. That's a game that I think I've noticed a lot more nowadays. People are saying, you know, that's a fun game. That's a fun game. A lot of multi-balls and a lot of different ways to win. A lot of good shots. You've got to be happy seeing some of these older games and Godzilla being an example of, well, they're really standing the test of time. Yeah, especially, you know, we went in with the mindset on Godzilla to make more of a street, kind of a street version, street-friendly game where you didn't have a lot of mechanisms on it, not a lot of things to fail or to maintain, just one big, gigantic green ramp. And it turned out to be a pretty good shooting game. I do get a lot of good comments on, on Godzilla, and here we are 20 years later, that people do enjoy shooting Godzilla. It was made more for a downsized game, even though it looks loaded uh, because of the big Godzilla head and the, and the hand coming out of the back box or the back uh, back panel. You know, it's really just one big gigantic green ramp um, that takes up a lot of the space as you look at the game. But you know, when you flip that game open, there's not a lot going on. You know what I mean? So it was. It was made for a different market, but the movie didn't do all that great. So the game, and I won't say that it's because of the movie, but a lot of times, you know, the game doesn't do the numbers you thought it would because the movie didn't do the numbers you thought it would, you know. So that might be a good example of that. Yeah, I guess if you've got something that's unknown with a, a movie like Starship Troopers, you really are hoping the box office, the critics, everything go well. With something like Star Wars, you already know the success of that. So when you worked on South Park, South Park was still kind of pretty new back in 1999 when that game came out. But that game was so popular in the remaining arcades that were around in 99, that really hurt other companies. I've heard other people talk about how South Park was the death of maybe uh, some other games, some other companies. Yeah, it, uh, you know, it came out in 99. We had a blast putting it together. Uh, there's parts of the game that you know, are just right over that line. Um, it's the first and, and the first and more than likely the last game that has a, a talking poop on the playfield with Mr. Hankey popping out of a toilet and also Mr. Hankey on the playfield. It was uh, it was kind of a joke, uh, kind of funny when you know you go to your plastics house that's doing your inserts and you ask <laughs> him if you could do inserts in brown. And they don't know anything about South Park. They're just answering questions, and they're like, brown? Yeah, we need inserts in brown. It has to be translucent, but we're looking for brown. And they pulled it off. And the game is just, you know, if you're a South Park fan, um, it's a fun game. It's easy rules. The one thing that I always bought into back in the 90s, you know, working with Joe, was to make games, you know, easier... Not easier, but just you understand it. You see a flashing light, you shoot it. It builds. Um, you could go through a game. You could learn a game. A game becomes more fun for the player once the player starts to learn the shots and learns how he's going to be rewarded for those shots. So South Park came at a time when, you know, the Pinball 2000 platform was being released. I thought they did one hell of a job on the Pinball 2000 platform. You know, you, you pretty much use the glare on the glass 
to an, for an advantage, and it was brilliant, uh, I thought. But you know, I guess you know you're sitting with shareholders that own your company. Bottom line is we're losing money, whatever that is. We're going to go in a different direction. I wouldn't say that South Park killed any games or companies, but it was at that time when uh, when it did well, and that's when we used to always check Play Meter and all the coin out magazines for the number one ratings. And, you know, South Park became a number one. And we were the small guy at Sega. But, uh, you know, when we got to number one ratings, you know, we had a little party. It was it was time to, uh, you know, kind of fist pump people and have some fun with it. So South Park just came at a time when it was a fun game. The, the TV show was just starting to pick up. And we just had a blast doing it. The game was number one for a lot of arcades, yet it wasn't enough for Sega. That was the last game ever made for Sega. So as Sega became stern, you're on to your next game, and it's a quick turnaround, too, from South Park to Striker Extreme. And Oren Day was recently on the Slam Tilt podcast, somebody you've worked with uh, many times, and he said that originally was going to be Oktoberfest. You had an idea to do Oktoberfest way back then. I assume that's true. Yes, it is true. Jeff Bush and myself were working on a theme, an Oktoberfest-themed game. Had a full layout for it. And as I was showing the game and the ideas behind it, Gary was, you know, Gary Stern came back and said that we really needed a soccer game. What can we do with this to, to, to save it and make it happen as a soccer-themed game? So like Oktoberfest that I just did with API – Although I've, I've, flipped, I've flipped design, I've added things, changed things. But the basic idea, if you think about Striker Extreme, what a goalie is at Striker Extreme, that's where the bartender lived. And, you know, you'd knock down the, the bar in front of them to get to the bartender. It was done with uh, a drop target bank, rollover drop target bank. And then that, that just evolved into Striker Extreme. One of the things about an Oktoberfest-themed game that we would hear is, you know, how do you sell Oktoberfest in June or pick a calendar date outside of October? So it made me think about it, you know, uh, okay, well, you know, all we want to do is theme this thing as a party party type of pinball machine. Um, So that's why we kind of taglined Oktoberfest with our new one as Pinball on Tap. But yes, it, it did start out as an Oktoberfest themed game, but um, you know it, it evolved into uh, Striker Extreme. The bartender turned into a goalie, and uh, you know everything else kind of fell in fell in place. John Norris had resigned from Stern, and you took over High Roller Casino, one of uh, Bruce Nightingale's favorite games. Uh, what was that like? You've done it since taking over from someone else. What's it like doing that when you've got? Uh, another design there. What, what did you have to do and, and how difficult was that? Well, when John had left, the game was slated to, as one of the next games up in production. And when uh, we looked at it in engineering, you know, there were some issues with the layout mechanically, just kind of the way the ball flowed, the way things were working um, on the initial layout that we saw some issues as a group and said, you know what, let's keep the design 
and let's just start it from the you know the bottom up and uh, let's clean it up for production. So that's pretty much what my job was. I worked on the slot machine. I uh, did the mechanics on that. You know, so there there was some parts of it that I was actually involved with while John was still with us. But then when he moved on, I just kind of got appointed. Uh, hey, let's get this thing ready for production. That's kind of how that that came together. Um, so I can't really, you know, take credit for that as being my layout. Um, it was one that was handed to me. Let's clean this thing up and get it ready for production. You did NFL, which was really the same layout as Striker Extreme. So the next kind of original layout is, Joe, my favorite game I've ever owned, and it will never, ever, ever leave my house unless I'm moving with it. The Simpsons Pinball Party. This is a game, and we were talking about this at Expo because you and uh, Keith Johnson were there, and the three of us were talking about this uh, this classic game that has all kinds of great toys. It has uh, amazing callouts. It's a licensed theme that I'm guessing was easy to work with because of those great callouts and and just the great package that it is. What was it like working with the Fox team for the Simpsons Pinball Party? We we really spent a good amount of time on trying to get the elements right. To have the couch, to have the beginning of every episode where you go into the house and you end up on the couch. To have to have Itchy and Scratchy in there, to have the quickie mark, to have, boy, you just keep going on. Obviously, you know, um, Homer had to be in there. Obviously, you had to have, you know, the Simpsons characters, you know, you tried to get as many into the game as, as you could. Fun, fun game to put together obviously. Had a great time doing it just because of the theme. I wasn't a big Simpsons follower, Simpsons fan with the TV show. But once I was, once I got into watching episodes, Keith Johnson was a, is just a huge Simpsons guy. He had a lot that he wanted to put into the game. You know, there were elements of the first Simpsons pinball that we still wanted to try to put into the, the follow-up to it um, as far as the Simpsons Pinball Party went. We just had a lot, you know, the, the stacks from the uh, nuclear reactors on the pops. You know, things just bring back a little bit of what was then and what is now. Just a blast to do. I had the game, I would say it was 90-plus percent, 95% done when I decided to move on went out and, and started started a company um, that was still in CoinOp and kind of walked away from pinball for a little while. They changed a few things on there, but the the ultimate design is, is identical from when I left. There's, you know, a couple of elements in the game changed. I think there was a few cost-prohibitive things that I had put in there that they kind of pulled out and, and went to some standards just to, you know, bring it in under cost. But... Um, one of my favorite games I ever got to put together. Great. And one of the games that you know a good game when you shoot the white wood and it's fun. That's a, that's a big tell from the design side is when you have no art, you know, no sounds, no light shows. You're just shooting the ball around on a white wood. And I just felt it. And so did a lot of guys in engineering that this was going to be a good one. We had it down in the white wood. It felt good. You know, the first time we, we put it together, and it just got better from there. Keith did an outstanding job. It's, you know, 
boy, it's top one or two in, in, on his uh, on his list of awesome games that he's done. But that thing is so deep and so much fun. It's it, uh, yeah, it's it's a fun game. It's a really fun game to do that we did. Uh, the reverse flippers, my goodness! I know that's uh, Keith's baby or whatever, but uh, <laughs> when that was pitched, first of all, were you there at the time when he pitched that? Yeah, I think that was in there then. I'm pretty sure. Um, yeah, it was just wacky. Uh, you just go, "What are you talking about? How is this supposed to work?" But then you cross your arms, and all of a sudden, it's natural. <laughs> your brain still working, but you got to cross your arms, and it was a uh, very strange thing to happen, but that's when guys have a real passion for pinball, they'll come up with all kinds of things and make it a little different. It's so deep. I play it all the time. I've never come close to completing it. I can't even do Alien Invasion. Can't lock those five balls, but darn it all, I still try. And that's what makes me keep coming back to a great game like that. So, yeah, we had a 10-year void of no Joe Balser games, and then all of a sudden, Jersey Jack sets up. And they contact you to, to do this. You're back again with Keith Johnson on Wizard of Oz, which was revolutionary. I mean, look what that game has done to pinball today. The first LED display. Still the best-selling JJP game. And again, great toys, which is kind of a, a Joe Balser staple. Tell us about making Wizard of Oz. Jack had been in touch with me, and I was one of the first hires to come over and start Jersey Jack Pinball with him. He had Wizard of Oz on his radar, and that's what he wanted to do. You could see the possibilities with a theme that way, and uh, you know, you bring the movie home, and you watch it a few times, and you get freaked out by the flying monkeys, and you know, it brings back memories when you were a kid freaking out about the flying monkeys. But uh, you could see all the great possibilities to make that happen. When we went to dinner one night. Jack and myself and a couple others that had been with the company at the time early on. And he said that he had a surprise for me that night. And um, we're sitting there eating dinner just before dinner. And I was talking with someone else or whatever. And I turn around and there's Keith Johnson. And what he did was he put together what he thought as the best team he could put together at the time to do Wizard of Oz. Um, he knew the success of, of Simpsons. He was there when we were shooting Whitewoods at the time. And, um, you know, he, he just wanted to put it back together. So there was some, you know, big old man hugs, and here we are again, and we're going to do something great, or we're going to hopefully do something great again. And it all started from there. Uh, Wizard of Oz was never going to be a small game. Jack wanted bigger and better on pretty much everything we did. Um, you know, I, I spent time trying to talk him down. Do we really want to have a game with an upper play field as our first game? No, we want a game with two upper play fields. We really want a game. We want to move ahead and we want to go to LED display. Oh, how big can, what's the biggest one we could fit? Um, okay, what about RGB LED lighting? Yeah, and let's put that in there. And how about RGB LED GIs? And we just, there were no reins, you know what I mean? It was, can it be bigger, make it bigger? Can it be better, make it better? And it was unusual because as a startup, you're wanting to throw everything in in the kitchen sink, but then you got to build it. <laughs> and uh, all the ripples across, you know, the, the water 
trying to get that game to the line, you know, having issues going along the way. Again, it's a startup. You're trying to build one of the bigger games that have been built. It took longer than expected. The game has done extremely well for him. He comes out with different versions of it, and, and it's it's a beautiful game. I think, you know, as a startup, we probably could have came out with an LCD LED display, and we could have been done with it for the first one. But, you know, wanted bigger and better. So that's how that game became that big. And because of that, that's why it's still being built today. As different, as themed a little different, but they're still taking orders, and Wizard of Oz is still moving for JJP. Five years later, yep. they're still making that game, and it is still being sought after by so many different people. You said they threw everything in there, and I didn't know if you originally wanted it to be a wide body or just the regular size. I wasn't sure. I was all for wide body. I really was. Is that the case with all of your games? You, if you had a choice, it would be wide body? If I had a choice, I, I really believe that because, yes, I would. And, and the reason being, you have more, a little more real estate. You're going to get a couple of more lanes out of the game. You know what I mean? It gives you more room to work with. As a designer laying out, you have X amount of square inches to work with on a standard and you go from 20 and a quarter to 23, you know, so you're, it doesn't sound like much, right? You're picking up, you know, 20 and a quarter to 23, so uh, two and three quarter inches, an inch and three eighths on a side, really. But that's another lane. You can make a few more things happen, and I, and I like it. At API, we didn't go that way. There's been, you know, there's always a possibility of, of, of us doing a, a wide body layout. I will never say we won't, but that I thought would become the standard, and that's what we talked about at JJP. As you know, we would make the wide body, the twenty-three inch wide playfield, our standard, and and we did that, you know, moving forward with a Hobbit layout, and you could tell, you know, the, the difference between the two games. But when you get the trolls, uh, you know, popping up and down in that. The bigger area of the playfield that looks like there's nothing there, but once they're playing, I mean that that game loads up pretty quick, and there's a lot to shoot for. So, as a designer, as a mechanical guy, I like more real estate. But uh, you know, there's a lot of naysayers out there on wide bodies too. So, who knows? It's personal preference, I guess. It's funny when a wide body comes out and people say, "Wow, it doesn't play like a wide body." I guess what they're saying is, it's not floaty. When I play a game like Guaz, to me, it doesn't seem like a wide body. Some do. There's a difference, I feel, when I play Hobbit. And one of the questions about Hobbit that always kind of comes up is that upper right flipper, you know. What is the upper flipper meant to shoot? And since you're the guy who made it, I'll ask you that. Well, that was all the time was meant as a kill shot um, to get Smaug, okay, to get the dragon. I actually had four flippers on that game. We pulled one and turned it into a slingshot on the left side. And the upper, uh, there's an upper left slingshot. Just to the left of the dwarf. Oh, yeah. Yeah, just before before I left um, JJP, we changed that and got rid of the upper left flipper. The one thing that I thought, and I don't think it ever really made it to program, was if you used, like the flippers were different swords, okay, because the game is all about the different swords. So if the upper right flipper was, um, I forget the name of the 
kind of a, the top dog sword that's out there, at, you know, in, in, in The Hobbit. If you made that shot, if you made the kill shot from the upper right flipper, it would be worth big money compared to if you just made that shot when you weren't qualified. But it, it never, I don't think that, that aspect really ever came to fruition on the game as far as the programming of it went. So it's really, it was there for the kill shot on Smaug. It had more meaning in my head <laughs> um, than how it was, you know, how it came out on the game as a final product, I guess, is probably the best way to put it. So you're the guy who designs the games, and you've got examples of somebody like Keith Johnson who makes deep, deep, deep rule sets. Do you ever pull anybody back and say, that's too deep, it's not deep enough, we need more, we need less? What is that like for a designer like yourself? Kind of my main objective as, as a layout guy, as, as the layout designer of the game, is to do the best I can to make the ball move and, and make the shots work to the best of my ability to fit with the game rules themselves. So... Obviously, the rules are pulled from the layout, and then the layout needs to come through to make the rules work. Over time, and this is just my opinion, but over time, rules have, you know, have gotten so deep, just like you said, you know, you play Simpsons, it's one of your favorite games ever, you've never gotten to the end, you know, you've never gotten to that end game where you say, I, I got it and I beat it because we grew up, you know, competitively. You got to beat something to feel as though you won, right? Um, there's kind of a correlation between beating a game and, and finally feeling as though you conquered that game. And that goes into board games to video games to pinball games. They all kind of come from that same feel um, as an end game. Pinball has, you know, Kind of evolved where that that end game is really difficult to find and get to. Um, I think the the deeper players, the guys that are really into that side of the game, are amazed at how deep these games go. You know, myself personally, I set games on easy. You know, at my house because I have people come over. I want them to have some fun and not necessarily have to think about what they're really doing unless they, you know, they're going to flip away. They're not real avid pinball players. A couple of my friends are. I might set the game up a little different for them. But we just want to have a lot of fun, and having a lot of fun makes the easier side of the game rules to me as opposed to the tournament or the, you know, the real hands-on, let's let's play some pinball feel to a game. So I never put say, don't go there, you know, with any um, programmers I've worked with. I always try to add some stuff that I'd like to see in it. Sometimes it gets in, sometimes it doesn't. When it comes down to a, a crew doing a game, you know, I feel much more comfortable, not, not necessarily as a delegator, but you have your job to do, do it. And the artist has his job to do, do it. And the sound guy... And the, the guy that's doing display work, uh, my mechanical guys, the EEs, everybody has a job to do. And if you let people do their job, the final product will come out 
beyond your expectations. So you can always adjust rules down, but you can't add to them once the game's out there. You know what I mean? You you, you got to stop sometime. So you know, as far as the programmers go, go get crazy. They <laughs> do. They they do things that I never thought of, and 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 it's fun. That's what pinball I think is is developed into these days. That's what people look for. So I'm hearing that you are not someone who micromanages, which is uh, probably very relieving to the people you work with. And again, I think earlier in the interview, you talked about the more people in the early process that come up with different ideas, the better. And, and you can you know see what sticks and what works as far as costs are concerned. I know that's a big, big factor, but I guess with all these games that you've come up with, it had to come from somewhere. So what were the pinball games you loved when you were first playing pinball before you even started designing? Because these older games certainly weren't very deep, but yet very satisfying in making some of these shots. What were some of those games? Right. See, I have a different, like I have a background where, okay, I grew up in Cicero, Illinois. So I wasn't a big pinball guy. I wasn't a big video guy. Um, We were out and about um, all the time out with my buddies we were just hanging out in the neighborhoods. I played a lot of sports. I wasn't really into gaming of any type, really, as a kid. Except for, I used to stop in what was known as the Aneta Hotel. It's a hotel on Laramie or Central. I think it's Laramie in Cicero. And it was a, 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 a little city hotel that Al Capone and his boys used to hang out there when Al Capone was running around Cicero. I mean, I knew where his bungalow was and where he lived and all that stuff. You grew up in Cicero, you kind of, that comes along with the territory. And in that, they had a restaurant bar in there and they had a game called Bally Ho. And it was a flipperless game, but it was, uh, you basically played tic-tac-toe with it. So it was a five ball game. And if you could get five, uh, like a five bagger, you would call it, uh, across a 25 square, I think it was a 25 square dots or, or lights, light pattern that you could turn, um, with the, you know, you can turn it with a button and try to line these up. And it was 10 cents a game. And I, uh, it's been many, many years. So yeah, very, uh, okay to talk about. But, you know, I'd go there as a teenager and have a couple dollars in my pocket. I'd, you know, put a dollar into the game, which was 10 games and you would win games. And then you could walk up to the bar and say, hey, I got 100 games up there. And they'd say, okay. And they hit a little button under the bar, and the thing would click down. And they'd give you the money that you won. So pinball started out with me as this little place to make a few bucks because they would pay us um, over the bar counter on games that we won on the Valley Hole game. Which was not a game of skill and no. maybe caused some of the, <laughs> you know, we had to uh, change that with the flippers obviously coming in. And, yeah, because uh, you could bump the ball around, uh, you know, you just tried to get numbers, ball fell in a hole. So after that, I was, I was kind of, I didn't have a favorite pinball. I wasn't going out to really play pinballs. Um, my life was in a different direction. Uh, I was working um, as a model maker as a tool maker, model maker at, at General Motors, when I turned 19, found a job there, went into being a setup man there, and I was laid off and called back several times. And one of my customers, I was working as an auto mechanic part-time, 
one of my customers that said he had a, had a uh, his nephew was looking for guys that work in a tool room. Said, I want you to go see him. Probably get you a job. So he sends me out to this Midway Manufacturing in Franklin Franklin Park. And it's this big white building. And it has a Pac-Man out front. Waka, 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 waka. Going across on this lit sign. It's home of Pac-Man. And I had even heard of Pac-Man. I knew what it was, but I'd really never played it much either. And walked in and there was, if you remember those black signs with the white letters that they would push into the sign to, you know, to spell words and names. Um, I walked into this big, huge vestibule and it said, Midway Manufacturing welcomes Joe Balser. And I nearly fell down when I saw it. And I walked up to the lady behind the, the desk there and I said, I'm Joe Balser? She goes, oh, Mr. Balser, have a seat. And out comes this guy, Kenny Addison. And uh, Kenny says, come on, I'll show you my tool room. And as we're walking there, there are literally video uh, monitors stacked to the ceiling everywhere you could see. They were running Pac-Man games. And out on the floor was 8-Ball Deluxe. And they were sort of making pinballs and, and Pac-Man on the same building. Brought me into the tool room that you could eat off the floor. The cleanest tool room I probably had ever worked in. And he hired me. Next thing, I'm working there for a year or so, and they're looking for a guy to work with engineering for the pinball line. And there was a game, uh, it was a video pin game called Granny and the Gators. I know it. It's done by a uh, designer from back then, Claude Fernandez. So I, yep, I met Claude, and I did the um, fixtures, the line fixtures and the punch fixture to do the play field for Granny and the Gators. So that was kind of my first in on pinball, and I was doing fixtures for production for Granny and the Gators, which didn't run very many. And then uh, X's and O's was the next one. And from there, I just got a bug about pinball. I'd go in the lab, I'd shoot pinball every day. Worked on games like Spy Hunter, uh, what was it, Black Pyramid, Kings of Steel. 8-Ball Deluxe was on the line when I started, and I think when I left they had like an 8-Ball Champ on the line. But then there was massive layoffs, and, and I was laid off from Bally. And, you know, luckily got a job at Waco after that, um, working on a game called Aftor. But my time at Bally... So 82, so I was 23 years old. That's when I got the bug for pinball because I was working with it um, and got to play it a lot, you know. And then working with guys, um, the design groups and, and guys from Valley Midway, getting to know a lot of the old timers that were there. Um, it just it, it just became a part of me. I was shooting it every day. I didn't have to go out and put my money in pinball. I was working for a pinball company. So that's how it came about. That's where the bug came from, and that's kind of where it's been the rest of my career, really. Today, you are everything with American Pinball. It started with Houdini, and that's a game that you had to take over another layout, too, from John Papaduke. And really, it was changed quite a bit. I know you and I were talking about it at Expo. That was a quick turnaround. You've done quick turnarounds before, but this was a very, very quick turnaround, and you did it. I don't know how you did, but you did it. Yeah, it was. Uh, it had to be done that way. 
when I first got there, you know, I had an opportunity to get back with a startup. You know, it had been it had been a few years that I was out of JJP. Um, I was working as a an assembly. I was at an assembly plant as a plant manager. You know, um, doing light assembly, heavy assembly stuff. Nothing in the in the coin op business. Some stuff for WMS for like toppers for gaming, but um, not very much. And always had the bug to get back. Had an opportunity to go to this new company called American Pinball. Come to find out that you know they had a, a big black cloud over their head early on. There was a lot of issues working with John Papaduke trying to get a, you know his his game out to customers. Uh, once I found out a lot of that history of that. There was only one way to kind of start over for API, and that was to come out with a game quickly, something that people enjoyed. They had already gotten the Houdini license. There was a layout for Houdini that, honestly, shots didn't go anywhere. It was more kind of put together and looked like for more of a show-me show kind of thing for artwork than it was for an actual mechanical working game. Ownership insisted on bringing it to a show. Uh, the wheels kind of were falling off of that because people were looking at the play field knowing that it wasn't really a completed play field. What are you guys trying to do? And so I went back, talked with owners, and said, look, I think the only way we can do this thing is we got to scrap everything here. You know, if you've got any money tied into that ramp, I can try to save the ramp just for the tooling charge, but I'm going to do a whole new layout. Without really a definitive answer, it was just time to do it. So in November of 2016, I was hired in October. So a month later, I took a piece of paper and scribbled down some ideas for the layout. Started to you know put together a team. Didn't have too many guys that we could hire. Everybody's, you know, working at Stern, working at JJP. They're out of the business. They've been doing something else for 15, 20 years. They're all set. They're all good. Their executives are out there. But we're able to put together a team of some quality guys. I told them at one of the initial meetings that, hey, we got this piece of paper here in November. Uh, let's try to get to Texas. And they said, okay, Texas in a year, right? And I said, no, Texas in March. Yeah, you're out of your mind. There's something wrong with you. You know, a lot of expletives might have went along with that <laughs> about being a little crazy. But you know what? Within a couple of weeks, everybody bought into it. Vendors were helping us out in a big way. Uh, guys were delivering parts on a two-day, three-day turnaround. They're dropping parts off at the shop um, 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock at night. We were working almost all-nighters. Just the passion from the, the original team was outstanding. And all the way up to the last waking hour before Texas, we were trying to bring three games, and but we brought two. And they were two with a complete art package. They played... They weren't 100% or anywhere near 100% code, but they played. And we put all the naysayers to sleep because they all said they're just going to come with a box of lights if they do that. All the negativity about the company, yada, yada, yada. 
um, when we showed up at Texas and had a couple of working games, I'll tell you, you know, the tide changed. And in one show, you know, API was on the map as a player. Uh, we're in this. And uh, we told them at the show that we would be shipping games by the end of that year, by the end of 2017. And we had a factory with no line. We had no employees. You know, that was a pretty aggressive thing to say to begin with because we didn't have a place to build. I mean, we had a building to build it in, but we didn't have a line. We didn't have a lot of things set up. We didn't have, you know, we didn't have a front office, basically. We didn't have procurement, we, you know, purchasing. We didn't have, nothing was there. Um, we had seen over the last few years before that, you know, companies taking two to three to four or five years to get that game to market. And we told the customer base we'd have them, we'd be shipping games by the end of 2017. We said whatever we said, you know, we would do. And we boxed three games on December 30th, 2017. So we didn't stretch the truth. We just said what we were going to do, and we did it. A lot of work, a lot of, lot of hard work, a lot of, lot of hours, a lot of stress on you know, yourself personally, your family members, everybody's involved. But we pulled it off. It took a few more months after that, a couple more months, to really get the line up and running and building quality games. I personally, and, and Jim Thornton, who's my partner with this thing, who kind of wears a bunch of hats, uh, more of a, a project manager with me. He just does a lot of things with me to make things happen. And uh, we rode that line and signed off on every game that went out the door for the first couple of months of production. It was hard to get quality people to come in. I mean, you could imagine. There's a lot going on. So we signed off on a lot of the initial games, which turned out to be a plus for us because those games went out, um, and they worked. You know, that's pretty much the story of how that happened. We had to do what we had to do in that time frame, or I think the API thing may have just, you know, blew away in the wind. We had to make a splash. We had to do it in a short amount of time, and, and that's that's what we pulled off. I was hoping the game was going to do a lot better than it did. You know, that's our first one. There's been a few issues with it that we've tried to address as quickly as possible. Uh, we try to take care of our customer base and not BS them um, and just be, a, you know, a, a friendlier company to our distributors and to our customer base and we started out with that mantra that's who we wanted to be you know we're just we're on that path and we're hoping that we become as good as we can be that's just who american pinball should be the game is out it looks beautiful houdini had a pretty good following there at expo there were several games there uh in the american pinball section in fact american even gave one away andy rosa was the lucky winner of a new houdini pinball machine as uh, people tried to win one you said there are some issues you're trying to address coding is something you can do updates on is that something we will see with houdini if if that is in fact one of the issues oh yeah uh josh is constantly not i shouldn't say constantly but josh is trying to get down to one of the last you know one or two big updates for the game um and then put it on the shelf. So he's been working on a lot of things, a lot of input from P. 
people that he gives. Um, he works with some guys out there in the field that do a lot of play testing for him besides what we do in-house. And he's trying to address a lot of things and take care of people's um, suggestions or or issues that are out there. And obviously, you know, in code that becomes deep, you're going to find bugs in places you never thought were bugs. So, um, you know, it's coming down to the wire, though. I think, you know, over the next couple, maybe maybe two, don't quote me, maybe two or three uh, updates. And that probably be about it for Houdini because we're on to uh, Oktoberfest full steam. When a game first comes out and you said you had this out at Texas under a very, very quick turnaround, but it flipped. There wasn't any code or anything on it, but it flipped. And you've come out with Oktoberfest and there's a lot more code on that and still a lot more to come. When the first feedback comes out and you know it's not a complete game and maybe some of the feedback is, oh, there's not enough rules or something stupid that makes no sense because you've already announced that there's more to come. When you get some of that negative feedback right off the bat, and I see this with every single company, we're seeing it now with the Beatles for Stern. No one's played it, but people are putting out their opinions. Does that drive you nuts? Because I'll tell you what, I tell every single person on this show in person, don't judge it until you've played it and the code is complete. Then if you don't like it, that's fine. But that preliminary criticism must drive you nuts. Oh, it does. And and over time, you kind of wear your skin gets a lot thicker. You know what I mean? The one thing that I've learned over the years and, and more so these days as I get older is, is you, you can't please everybody. You, you can't. There will be people that will say this is a great shot, and there will be the same amount of people that say that shot is too tight or it should be in a different place or whatever. Everybody, I, I guess the bottom line is you just can't please everyone. You, you can't. And you could, you kind of hope that what your vision was or your team's vision is that people get it and they buy into it and they have some fun with it. And that's that's pretty much the bottom line on trying to put a good game out, and in my opinion. And I'm sure a lot of guys in our, on our team would feel about the same way. There really is a difference between people just venting and bitching for the sake of that and not really having any kind of firsthand experience of playing the game, but just, oh, I think it looks like this, or I, eh, I don't like this because I don't like maybe the band, as, as we see people complain about certain pinball machines that come out of, of certain artists. Those kind of criticisms are useless, but constructive criticism is a little different, and you talked about it at the start of this interview. There were 1,000-plus plays of Oktoberfest at Expo, and you noticed a couple things you wanted to change. And I think that kind of criticism, you as a designer, welcome big time. Oh, absolutely. I, that's it, it's so true. I mean, you can, get, you can only get so much in-house that, you know, you have to get some uh, feedback from others when you go on test or you go to a show. You got to watch people's reactions to shots. You got you to gotta ask them what they think about stuff. You know what I mean? How do you feel about that? What do you think about that shot? Um, you know, and and the more we opened up at shows, the more people come to us now, which is good. Hey, can I talk to you about something, Joe? Yeah, absolutely. They send emails. I got an idea, or let me throw something at you. Now, the guys that you know, the people that are negative, the people that want to just throw stones, the people that can find wrong in everything, send us your resume. 
<laughs> yeah. Right? You want to be a, a programmer? You uh, you want to be an artist? You want to? You, you think you can uh, lay out a game? You know, send us your resume. Let's talk. A lot of people will say a lot of things, but if you come back and say, okay, let's show me what you got, you know, bring it kind of thing, that somehow kind of turns a different way, doesn't it? You know what I mean? And that's how that's how I kind of handle it these days. It's like, you know, Houdini had this thing about, you know, tight shots, a couple of tight shots. You know, tight shots are not bad shots. A, a tight shot on a game for a very meaningful shot, when you make it, it feels good. You know what I mean? I don't put shots out there that are, I don't know, uh, a 30-second wider than the pinball. I mean, a minimum shot on a game that I ever lay out has got to be about, you know, it's going to be an inch and a half. A, game, a pinball is an inch and a sixteenth. So, you know, going about 50% larger than the pinball would be the narrowest shot that I would let go and see if it's shot. You know what I mean? Um so, you know, if you, if you think it's tight shots, but then the next guy you see playing hits it three or four times in a row, you know what? Eh, it's not that tight. You're just having a bad day. <laughs> you know? I heard that when Houdini first came out, I don't know if it was the white wood or not, you wanted to make that shot tighter to what it is today. It was something different, and then it became tighter. No, no, no. It, it got bigger. The, the shot got wider. That's oh, okay. The opposite. Early on, it had half-inch targets. Okay, uh, the, the short, the, the the narrow targets were half-inch targets, and I changed them all through a suggestion from uh, one of my good friends as a shooter. Why don't you bring those targets down to three eighths? The blade behind them is three eighths. Why do you have to have half-inch? And he was right. So we took all the half-inch targets and made them three eighths wide. So we picked up a sixteenth on a side or an eighth of an inch on the shots on every shot that had anything to do with a, a narrow target on each side. So, and believe me, an eighth of an inch on a, on a shot on a pinball machine, that's a lot. You know what I mean? So the shots grew. They didn't get tighter. Not at all. <laughs> all right, let's, we put that rumor to rest there. So could you imagine a tighter Houdini? Uh, uh, no, then I could say, yeah, you guys are right. <laughs> go to smaller balls. Use those hyper balls we talked about earlier. There you go. We can do that. All right. Please don't. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So Houdini, Oktoberfest 2, mm-hmm. unlicensed themes, if you will. Yep. Easier to work in this atmosphere with a blank canvas and, and not having the restrictions of the license holders. What yeah. do you think? I, uh, yes. Yes, yes, and yes. But it's harder as an artist because you have a blank canvas, so you have to create everything. You don't have properties to draw from. I think, you know, if you want to get games out, I believe, well, I, I can't even say faster because we can turn, we've, we've taught ourselves how to turn games. But, you know, a, a licensed theme comes along with a lot of assets. You're going to have video assets. You're going to have sound. You're going to have art for the play field. You're going to have a, a playbook. You know, you're going to have a, a storyboard of, uh, to work with right when you sign on the dotted line, Okay. So implementing all of that, I think, is, I I hate using the word easy with pinball, but it's not as time-consuming because you have all these assets to choose from. It's just how you choose them and where you put them and how you turn it into a game, right? So the non-licensed thing, like you said, is a it's a blank canvas. You have to have really good input at first. You have to have 
a list of things you want to see on the game and then kind of hunt and peck through that, throw out what you can throw out um, and keep what are the best of that list and then move forward. So now you guys doing your art as a vision because we've all discussed it. Uh, myself laying out the, the layout for the, for the uh, play field. I'm off on, on my tangent there because I have a vision that we've all discussed, uh, players on the team. And the guys that are coding um, have their ideas and their vision. And you just go off and get done what you need to get done and come back and see what you have. A lot of tweaking goes on then. Maybe we're in the wrong place here on this part of the game. Maybe we're, maybe this needs a little different, you know. But you control it. And that's what I like about the non-licensed thing is that it's in your hands to control. You make it or break it. You don't have to go and develop a, a backlash and spend all that, you know, hours and hours and then the time to produce it to bring it or to, you know, to show it to a licensor and they say, uh, no, that's not, we don't like that. Or, you know what I mean? So the bottom line is with yourself. And if you make good decisions throughout the process of getting to that first built game, it's a really proud, really good feeling when it all does come together and it's all, it's all designed in-house, it's all put together in-house, and there's nobody watching over you but your own crew or your own team. That's what I like the most about it. Will API never do a licensed theme? Uh, never say never. You know what I mean? Um, I don't see us never making it a licensed theme. You know, I think someday that will happen. But right now we're going to stick, uh, we're, we're on the road we're on, and we're going to go with the non-licensed themes, um, things that are kind of pseudo-licenses, I like to call them, where they're very well-known. You know, you do your own thing with it. That's who we are at this point. That could change. It could change just like, you know, he changed your socks in the morning, so. <laughs> I don't want to take anything away from Oktoberfest, but how far are you into the API game number three? Game number three, we got two different directions we want to go. Uh, we just got to make a decision on turn it right or turn the left. You know what I mean? We got a gotcha. couple. Of, and and there's a there's a you know we have a list of kind of pecking order and how we're going to start hitting our next games, but uh, we got nothing etched in stone right now. We keep we keep it all on a sandboard, and the wind blows and it changes. We have to get stuck on it. You know, as soon as this thing hits our line, we got to get on number three and make it happen. But you have to love the theme to get behind it. I can't imagine. I know you didn't really know the Simpsons TV show, but, uh, you, you know, you, you got up to speed. Keith helped you out. You've got to be behind the theme, don't you? Yeah. And one thing that's nice, I mean, in today's world, you know, you can Google anything. And if you're a little confused or you don't know, you know, a couple of good nights, a few hours doing some research, you can pick out a lot of good things that you can get behind, uh, you know, behind a theme. Um, find the things that work for you, you know what I mean? And once everybody kind of gets comes to that intersection and they go, you know what, this is going to work. You know, that happened with Oktoberfest. Everybody wasn't on board with that. But once we, everybody got to understand that it's more, it's like a big, gigantic family party that happens all around the world and there's a lot of aspects to it there's a lot going on people bought in then it's time to buy in here we go 
You know what I mean? So there's an aha moment, I think, on every idea, uh, no matter what it is. But when it comes down to game theme, you know, you, you're, you're hoping for that aha moment where everybody kind of does it at the same time. But, you know, you never know. Joe, I know your last four games before Oktoberfest, some of the highest rated games on Pinside, and the only reason Oktoberfest isn't up there yet is because people haven't played it yet, and I'm sure that will be up there as well too. So I wish you the absolute best of luck with Oktoberfest, with American Pinball, and with yourself, and I cannot thank you enough for coming on Pinball Profile. Thank you too, Jeff. Uh, you know, we had a good talk at Expo. I'm glad we were finally able to get together. Um, open invitation. Anytime you're in Chicago, come find me. We'll go do something. Come out to the plant, whatever you'd like to do. But uh, you're more than welcome. And uh, thank you. That's it. Pinball keeps going, man. We're all a part of that. We're all making it happen. I'm going to take you up on that offer in March. Thank you very much, Joe. Thanks again, Jeff. This has been your Pinball Profile. You can find our group on Facebook. We're also on Twitter at Pinball Profile. Email us pinballprofile at gmail.com. And please subscribe on either iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. I'm Jeff Teolis. Pinball Profile.